Hi, this is Alan Chartok. Delighted because with us today is one of my favorite people in the entire world, Laura Walker, the president of Bennington College in Bennington, Vermont. Before joining Bennington, she was the founding president and CEO of New York Public Radio and held that position for an amazing 23 years. She grew that place, I believe I read one time, from $12 million to $120 million, and that was a couple of years ago. Oh, a couple of years ago. She's currently executive fellow in residence at the Yale School of Management and an advisor to New York Public Radio, Common Sense Media, a range of startups. Welcome, old friend, Laura Walker. Great to have you on the radio. It's wonderful to be here and to be in Bennington and to be within your listening area. I love listening to WAMC. You can't ask for more than that from a pro like yourself. So, Laura, let's get a little into your bio. Where were you born? I was born in New York City, fourth-generation New Yorker. No kidding. Yeah. Yeah. And where did you go to school? I went to, well, high school in, out in Tarrytown, New York, but I went to Wesleyan in uh, Connecticut, and then I went to Yale for business school. But I am, uh, my, my great-great-grandfather was a minister down on the Lower East Side, and uh, so I come from a long line of uh, people doing service, and and my grand grandfather, actually, my great 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 grandfather was the minister, and my great great grandfather was a doctor who actually would tell stories about the 1918 flu. Really, what stood out about what he told you? I think that there were very few doctors, apparently, who really went to visit people um, during the 1918 flu, and that it, how horrific it was, uh, particularly for the children, if I remember. Wow. Different than wow. this one. Different than this one. He, they lived um, on uh, Lexington Avenue, right across from the 92nd Street Y. Well, my stomping grounds, of course, I was on the other side of the park. When I grew up, the east side was a place for, you know, more wealthy people. I don't know if that's changed now, for whatever it's worth. Laura, your experience at NYC is just extraordinary. As I said, you grew it from a very paltry amount of money into this incredible station, which has done so much and produces so much public radio listening. Tell us a little about how you did all of that. Well, the first thing I did, actually, I think it was my second or third day, I came in uh, to WNYC when it was actually owned by the city of New York. And right. we had a kind of a deal that was in place uh, with Mayor Giuliani, uh, who had said that he wanted to sell these stations. He wanted to get out of the broadcast business. But as you know, people in um, you know public radio listeners and staff and everyone are so passionate about what we do that there was a, a huge kind of outcry uh, from the board that was at that time kind of just a, a board that advised the mayor. Um, uh, and it said, no, you have to sell it to us. So I came in working for them and brought it into uh, an independent public radio station. But on the second or third day, I called you. I don't know whether you remember this. And you gave me some advice uh, about fund, fund drives. And you said, you're going to hate doing them because if you haven't done them before, it feels like, oh, my gosh. But they are the best, and they are the best way to – uh, you know, show you how much listeners care and to help listeners to 
you know, put uh, help support something that they love. And I, that stuck with me that, you know, don't be afraid of the fun drives. Actually, uh, you know, uh, understand that they really are such a critical part. And so we had we raised money from the listeners to pay for the license. We had uh, a deal. We made a deal with the city for $20 million to buy those licenses. That was a lot of money back in 1995, yeah. 96. And we didn't know where it was going to come from. But but you know the bulk of it came from listener contributions, and uh, so thank you for that advice. And yeah. you know, Alan, it's really you know it's about um, looking at how you can serve the the community that you live in. So for us, uh, really looking at how what New Yorkers want from and need, you know, uh, and looking at the strengths of what public radio staff can do, which is, as you well know, and as you demonstrate every day, a strong connection with listeners, really, really deep local news and uh, investigative reporting. Um, we also, at, when, so we grew the newsroom from, I think there were one and a half people when I got there, and when I left, there were 70. And, you know, Brian Lehrer, you know, I, I'm, yeah. you know he is like one of the... Um, best interviewers and the best conveners of civil conversation. Um, we love him. We yeah. love him. And I believe he's a U Albany graduate. I'm, he is. I'm he is. Yet. Right. <laughs> and uh, very loyal. I mean, he's, he, uh, uh, was, uh, he went to school there and he, uh, he, he, you know, was in commercial radio before he was in public radio, but he has become, I think one of the the strongest voices. But the other thing we did was to uh, look at how we could create, as you said, you know, our own programming because we wanted to bring New York to the world. And uh, you know, so over time we built uh, Radio Lab. We built um, it, we we kind of reframed and brought on the media to a national audience. We built the Takeaway. We we created um, Death, Sex, and Money, and on on the uh, and Studio 360 and the New Yorker Radio Hour. And we did that because, you know, as you know, New York is a place with some of the most talented people. And, uh, you know, it, at that time, people weren't so cool on working for radio. But, um, you know, That's by the true. time we left, it's totally different. Yeah, I remember when we were looking for staff when we first started. I took over in 79. We started looking for staff, and the news guys would say to us from other stations, what's public radio? <laughs> they would, yeah, exactly. They wouldn't, they wouldn't know it. It's the promised land. You know, it's always reminded me a little bit of that point in Tom Joad when they finally come to this camp where they're treated as human beings. <laughs> and I think that's what happened with a lot of these commercial radio guys. We'll still talk about having to run to the bank to make sure their check would clear from, from their commercial experience. Well, Laura, um, so why did you leave after all of those years? That's a lot of time. It is. It was uh, 23 years. Uh, you know, uh, somebody said to me when I first... Uh, you know, arrived at New York Public Radio. I think I was thinking, I, oh, I'll stay like seven years, eight years. Um, but they said, if you try to think about how to redefine not just your job, but the organization and, and evolve it every five years, ask yourself deeply that question. And if you don't feel you can be, take it to the next level or you don't see uh, that you are the right leader, um, you know, uh, then 
it's probably time to to leave. And so every five years I ask myself that question. And every five years I, uh, you know, whether it was uh, let's build the local newsroom or let's uh, create programming for uh, the country and for the world um, or whether it's, uh, you know, let's uh, disrupt ourselves and go into podcasting in a big way or, you know, buy WQXR and really create a classical music station. Every five years I thought this is like there we can we can serve even more people and that you know I have uh you know a sense of the vision of the future and how we can you know meet the mission to make the mind more curious the heart more open and the soul more joyful which was our our mission statement and um I think uh in the end as I was about to like commit to another 5 years I thought you know it's time that there be, uh, you know, it's time for someone else to take over and to kind of, um, and, and, and Goalie has been doing a, a fabulous job. And for me to step back and to kind of say, what, you know, what, what do I want to do? And what can I, what kind of impact can I have on another place? So how did Bennington come about? <laughs> so I was at, at Yale. So I, I went from uh, New York Public Radio to Yale to be an executive fellow. And I, I kind of realized how much I loved mentoring young uh, people as they were kind of uh, creating their own, um, you know, their own goals. And as they were asking, I think many of the same questions that I was asking at that point, how do I use, you know, um, what I know, how do I think about my passion? How, how do I um, create a life of balance? Um, I, I found at Yale, there were so many young women, <clears throat> excuse me, that were, uh, you know, looking for, some mentorship and looking for some models, um, and they had never met a, you know, a woman CEO before. So as I was kind of there, and I was, you know, working on, you know, leadership programs and and marketing programs, um, I was I really thought deeply about what I wanted to do, and I thought about entrep- you know, kind of starting a, a a company around podcasting, and I had some investors and uh, other things, and then I thought, no, my uh, I think really I want to kind of lead another institution. And uh, in the course of a lunch, somebody said, "Would you uh, would you like to kind of explore Bennington?" And I and I thought, "Oh my gosh, Bennington!" Um, and I had you know I didn't know that much about it, but I knew one of the former chairs quite well, Deborah Wadsworth. Um, and I know you know she's since passed, but uh, we were friends, and I know how deeply, deeply uh, Bennington had affected her and how she fought as a, the board chair to uh, make sure that Bennington had the resources and the and the kind of strategy to keep it going. And, you know, I thought anyone like from public radio who's going to, you know, for whom, you know, there is such meaning, you know, uh, uh, that must mean a lot, and I explored it, and I fell in love. I don't blame you. I have to tell you, I have known a lot of people from Bennington, women from Bennington over the years, and their loyalty is extraordinary, including one who I think spent one year there and has been talking about Bennington ever (laughs) since. And I said, well, why didn't you stay and graduate? She said, well, I didn't want to miss the point of the education, which was very sharp, but, you know, certainly not right. And I'm wondering how you're getting your feet wet. Are you putting your feet into the pool? Are you diving in? How are you doing it? 
<laughs> well, it is really hard, but also really kind of exciting time to uh, introduce, you know, to get to know a college community and to frankly get to know uh, academia in a different way. Um, you know, I got my feet wet because the first day I got there on August 1st or the first day I took uh, the the reins, we, I, I had to figure out how to get testing, <laughs> you know, for COVID. Um, and so I've kind of entered in by seeing and working with an extraordinary um, senior staff who uh, I just saw as we planned for you know, uh, students coming back and figuring out what we're going to do with COVID. Uh, that was actually a really interesting way to get to know the community because I saw how the community came together, faculty, staff, students. I saw um, how students really wanted to be there, you know, not only to get out of their parents' bedrooms, I mean, basements, but but because it meant so much uh, to be uh, at Bennington. Um, I understood in thinking about, and uh, in, in even, you know, as we thought about uh, how to deliver remote classes, how to do hybrids, how to, that that, that faculty is so dedicated to teaching, because that's one of the things that's um, very, very special about Bennington. Um, the faculty are, t are teachers and practitioners first, and they are really, really devoted to not uh, to, to teaching and to strong relationships with individual students. And to, and they're there because, frankly, they don't necessarily want to, they don't want to teach the same class every year. They don't want to just teach, as one of the faculty members said to me, I don't want to just teach biology one every single year in the same way to just a different group of students. I want to kind of understand, I want to teach biology, but I also want to, you know, hear what the students um, are interested in. And I want to kind of develop classes like neuroscience or, or you know, ecology or other kinds of classes that both um, help me to grow and also meet the students' interests. And that's a very special place. And so what we've seen actually during COVID is that there was a COVID class, you know, that was developed over the summer that was open to students, to faculty, to staff, to people and the community. Um, and it was really looking at various aspects of, of the COVID crisis from public health to uh, how a community like Bennington is going to, you know, uh, create a safe environment. And they were helpful in, in uh, creating some of the guidelines. And so I got to know the, the um, community uh, in a really special way. And at a time when everyone was asking a fundamental question, which is how do we create an environment that is both safe and, you know, advances the kind of core teaching of, uh, of Bennington. And I think, you know, the, the community has done an extraordinary job and the students are, you know, in, extraordinarily caring of each other and respectful of the rules, even as it is so difficult in many ways to wear masks all the time and social distance. Um, but I, uh, you know, it was uh, a time in a funny way, not unlike when I came to New York Public Radio in the midst of 
then it was in the midst of how do we save this station and create a new model. And here it's how do you create a safe community and also ask some fundamental questions about the, the future of higher education and the future of small liberal arts like, like the colleges like Bennington. We are talking to Laura Walker, the former president of WNYC in New York, now the president of Bennington College, and a very good person. So, Laura, what is the state of affairs? I mean, uh, kids walking around, students walking around. What can you tell us about how the campus looks these days? Yeah, it's uh, so 80% of the students are on campus, which is amazing. And yeah, they are... They're in their houses, but they're walking around. They they all have their masks on. They're uh, outside and they're playing dodgeball or, uh, you know, um, doing working on the farm. Um, they're they're doing classes in really interesting ways. So there's, uh, for example, if you went up to the music building Jennings, and uh, there is a, a, a class in ear training, kind of a theory class, a music theory class, and uh, they the students are outside um, and they are. Uh, probably 10 feet away from each other, they actually don't have their masks on because they're singing. And um, they, the uh, faculty member is inside uh, w- in front of kind of a, a, a you know board and, uh, of uh, music, uh, playing music to them and giving instruction to them to, to sing and to kind of think about the major intervals, the minor intervals, whatever. But it is a sight to see, and it is a really Bennington way of, uh, of kind of creating, okay, a, a really innovative environment. Um, uh, and actually, I'm not sure whether they have their masks on or not, but, they, but they're singing outside, and they're, uh, you, you know, figuring out how to do something creative. There's a, a class, a, 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 an art class, where they have actually virtual, you know, people um, who are virtual and are kind of thinking about how to design certain sculptures and art objects. And there's a, a and, and somehow they're figuring out how to do it at home. There's a, you know, a class that's looking, uh, most classes are hybrid. Most classes have both uh, people you know, in the classroom, or at least are on campus and and in the classroom. And some of them are taking, you know, part of the class on, uh, you know, online that are asynchronous kind of lectures and then doing, you know, some uh, maybe one day a week in a discussion that is half uh, online and half people in the room. And people are, are discovering what to do, you know. And there are some uh, professors who are, uh, you know, sending art kits or other things to students at home so they can be, you know, working uh, on what they're doing, uh, you know, in their home environments. Um, There's a class um, that uh, has, we have this wonderful tradition of pop-up classes, um, which are classes that, uh, you know, kind of um, really meet uh, the goal of kind of meeting students where they are. So we had uh, a couple of students from Belarus. And as you know, there's, you know, a lot of uh, turmoil and protests uh, in Belarus. Uh, 
And, you know, people were very interested in, you know, figuring out how, uh, you know, what is going on. And so there's a pop-up class uh, in Kappa uh, in the, the, uh, in, uh, that, that, is, uh, that, that basically is teaching about democracies and teaching about Belarus. And, is, uh, you know, that students from Belarus are, are uh, you know, participating in the class and, and both learning and teaching. And it's a, such a wonderful kind of tradition. You know, Laura Walker, we know that we can talk all we want about the values of the wonderful Bennington College, and it is a wonderful place, obviously. People rave about it who went there, and people go there tell me about it, but it's all about money in a way. You've got to raise the money, and that's where you're an expert, too. How are you going to raise the money that's needed to run it? I, I say that because I remember one professor somewhere or other came up with a list of colleges that didn't have enough endowment. And I believe Bennington was on the list. So how are you going to do it? Yeah, that was Scott Galloway. We are going to do it in kind of a Bennington way. You know, we're going to pick up on that incredible loyalty and that incredible passion for Bennington and, you know, both uh, reach out to uh, donors and alums and uh, and and current parents and uh, you know other kind of foundations. Um, we're going to look to raise philanthropic money, and in addition, we will you know uh, continue to uh, attract students who want to come to Bennington and you know make sure that we have the the you know the the kind of uh, right mix of students and the students that, you know, enough students to be able to pay the tuition and, and go forward, and which we do have now. But we want to make sure that in this uh, changing world, we continue to do that. We're going to be looking at, you know, um, some programs, like we have this, uh, the writing program, an MFA in writing, which is incredibly strong and one of the very first MFAs in writing, and look at how do we attract even more uh, and, uh, you know, kind of what are called non-traditional students. Students who, you know, in that program, uh, in the writing program, they come to, to campus usually, not this year, but for, a, you know, a, a really concentrated time. It's called a low residency program. So they live on campus for, you know, a, a concentrated time of several weeks or um, in the in the fall, in the, you know, winter term, and then, you know, do their work. So we want to look at, you know, after that and then come back together. And so we want to look at innovative pro programs like that, that both are serving a need and can, you know, look at kind of other revenue streams. We want to look at how we can make an impact in the world, like what uh, Judith Ank, who is on every Friday, is doing around plastics. And and there are people who she's doing an online class right now that is that has attracted people from all around the world to to uh, to, to learn from probably the expert in the world around plastics and around how we uh, create a sustainable world and how we can, you know, get the right uh, policies in place and practices so that we uh, we can become more sustainable and we can look at what the environment is doing. And there are, you know, and, and so we want to look at um, 
programs like that and raise money uh, around uh, the the ideas and the kind of incredible things that people are doing uh, at Bennington that will have a larger impact and 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 also attract you know different and more donors and I'm uh, I'm confident we can do it I'm confident that uh, we will be even more vibrant in 10 years we'll look a little different I'm sure but we're gonna in terms of I think having you know, an even more diverse mix of students, both undergrad and and graduate, and uh, having our tentacles out into the world in uh, in many ways, both globally and locally. So, how do you feel about single sex education? That's how Bennington started, of course. What is your assessment of all of that? You know, I think at Bennington, the fact that it was started uh, in 1930, early 1930s. Uh, in the midst of a depression, for as a place for young women to come, uh, that uh, who wanted a place where the arts were central, where there was kind of a, a, another phase of progressive education that would uh, sustain a woman's um, intellectual uh, curiosity and. Uh, and help a woman kind of really uh, get an education that was really strong and a little bit more independent and innovative than some of the other women's colleges. That is in the DNA of Bennington. Um, the strong women, I mean, I love meeting the women, you know, who graduated in the 40s, 50s, 60s when it was an all-women's school because they have uh, this unbelievable um, vibrancy and self-confidence and, uh, you know, creativity and belief in both their own uh, kind of ability to ask questions and thrive in the world, as well as kind of a, a, a real desire to make an, an impact. And that uh that is in the DNA of this place, and that is because I think, to a large extent, it was a women's school. So I'm a real believer in single-sex education, um, and also, uh, you know, looking at what is it uh, from all women's schools that can continue. How do we continue and make sure that the graduates, both men and women, um, you know, who are coming out of Bennington have that those same characteristics of, uh, you know, a certain, you know, a, a real tenacity and creativity. Laura Walker, let's go back to raising the money. Uh, now, you were a magician when it came to the foundations and the people that you went to to support the programming at WNYC. And so I'm sort of wondering, is there any tangentialness, that's a bad word, but is there any way... Uh, because you knew the people, you know the people, that you can pick up a phone and say, remember me, as opposed to sending in a 50-page proposal, <laughs> which will have virtually no impact. Knowing people means a lot, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. I mean, I think, and, and also uh, really um, understanding what, when when I talk to a Bennington alum or a member of the community, um to really understand what was so special about Bennington for them um, and make that connection and help them uh, 
see how their contribution to Bennington at this point can help others have that same kind of experience. And that's something I think, you know, you can do uh, with a personal connection. Of course, it's really difficult to do that, uh, you know, with people who don't live in Bennington or who are, you know, virtually, uh, you know, uh, uh, where they live somewhere else and I can't get to them. So that's one of the challenges. But uh, I think um, there are there's such an incredible feeling for Bennington that it's about connecting. And, you know, somebody said to me very early on uh, when I was at WNYC, I had, you know, I had been at Sesame Workshop uh, for uh, eight years before that. And one of the things I did for five years was actually start and run their uh, development program, their fundraising program. And I had, I had done a lot of fundraising there in from foundations and from government and, but none from individuals, none, none from you know, major donors. They didn't, that wasn't part of what, uh, what their, their, you know, mix was. And so I was a little nervous coming in um, to New York public radio and, uh, I remember very early on one of my first uh, visits to it was a board member and I um, I knew her pretty well but I talked uh, and 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 about kind of where we were going and what we needed to do and she spoke about how uh, not only her personal experience but what was really um, profound in listening every day but her belief that. Uh, Public radio really is a, a really critical part of our democracy and that, you know, educating people to become active citizens is not only um, a good thing, it's a critical thing going forward. And so we talked about that and I asked her for a large sum of money at the end and she said, let me talk to my husband and we'll uh, get back to you tomorrow. And she did, and she gave me the full amount, and I thanked her profusely, and then I thanked her again, and she said, you know, Laura, I'm the one that should be thanking you, because to be able to uh, help uh, create active citizens, to be able to do something that will have an impact not just uh, on me, but on a lot of different people, that is a gift to me. And uh, so you're the one giving me a gift. And that was really um, important advice for me because I do believe that philanthropists, they, and, you know, uh, whether they're alums or whether they're people who believe in, you know, with Bennington, some of the work that we're doing um, and want to kind of have that uh, alive and impactful on the world, that um when they give it's a gift to them too because it's about their legacy and it's about continuing something that was very important to them and making it you know more available to others so tell me a little bit about town and gown you come to bennington you know there's a town there obviously there's been good relationships over the years is there anything that troubles you about it the only thing here that i want to do is build on the incredible work that Bennington has done in creating a really strong relationship with both Bennington and North Bennington. So I think it was my fifth day on the job. I uh, attended a 
select board meeting of uh, you know the of Bennington, and I was doing that. Um, you know, normally it would be to say, hello, this is who I am. I want a strong relationship. But, of course, it was about uh, I thought it was really important to meet with the select board and kind of talk about what our plans were for COVID and how we were going to, uh, you know, make sure that what we were doing on campus was going to create a safe environment for the whole community and to get their thoughts about what more we could do together. So I think that was um, um, you know, uh, in some ways, a very good start to kind of, you know, be able to say we care, we're all in this together, and we. I think it was much appreciated. I think the what I want to do is is uh, increase even more the the strong relationship. There's great, uh, you know, relationship with the hospital, with the schools in town, and we send our students out to you know, to intern in the schools. There's a group of students who do restorative justice work in the high schools. There's work out of Kappa that is looking at food insecurity and creating ways to uh, make sure that the that we can do whatever we can to um, not only uh, provide food safe from our farm, but to help others in the, the community help each other. Um, we are doing work with in regenerative farming and other uh, you know things that Vermonters are really interested in. I think the eighth day I went to the North Bennington Select Board and had a conversation with them about COVID and, and what we're doing together. And I think everyone is um, tied in a different way, in a stronger way um, because of that. You and because we've the been so successful. You know, we've been so successful. We had in in working, uh, you know, to keep COVID away. You know, we had three cases when uh, students arrived. Uh, we quarantined those students, and uh, they, you know, actually, I don't think, I think two of them didn't have any symptoms at all. Uh, but we, uh, you know, we they quarantined and uh, recovered and got negative tests, and we have not had another case since. Uh, and that was at the very beginning. And then we test people every single week. And I think that really matters, obviously, to our community, but also to the town of Bennington and North Bennington, because people are going in and out. And, you know, we want to make sure that we're keeping uh, the town safe, but also vice versa, that the people who are coming in every day are, uh, you know, getting tested, you know, on a regular basis. And, and uh, so we're, I'm really proud of the results that we've had so far. So your testing is for every student on the campus all the time? Yes, every week students get tested. That's amazing. And also fast turnaround. Like you know within 24 hours usually, sometimes 48, but it's been it's been less than 24 hours for the last several weeks, which is, you know, astonishing. You mentioned the farm a couple of times. People may not be aware that you have a farm. What's that about? It's called the Purple Carrot Farm and uh again, it starts with a tradition at Bennington of these women during the war actually creating a farm, like a big victory garden. And um there are these pictures of, you know, Bennington women, um, some in dresses, right, with hoes and, and you know, uh, uh, shovels um, working on the farm. Every student had to work on the farm in the uh, during the war, and it was a really strong part of a, 
of Bennington women's both education and social experience. Um, that so there's been a, a tradition of that, and right now. Uh, for example, this past weekend, the community came together to harvest, and uh, I still have a few of those carrots. And yes, there are purple carrots, and and then to plant and to plant garlic and to plant plant uh, other, uh, you know, uh, other um, plants for the, you know, for the the next year. And one of the things that's so wonderful about uh, the farm is that you know we have a, a fair number of. It, uh, international students, students that come in from other areas, you know, around the world, and um, I think it's about 18% of our students are uh, from are, are international, and they sometimes miss the food that they, you know, are used to eating. And so there have been instances where uh, we had a, a student from China who was growing kind of, uh, you know, some, it was kind of a bok choy kind of thing that, uh, that you know, he missed. And I think that I heard there's another student right now that is uh, growing some uh, food in the garden um, from their own you know their own country and what they, and then that's sharing with everyone else. So we hope to get this to a place where we can, uh, you know, it, it can feed a little bit more of the students that are, you know, working, and also obviously it provides really great educational experience for the students. You know, Laura Walker, one of the things that I do, of course, is politics, and I hate to do this to you, but are we in trouble in this country? <laughs> I think we are at a really, really critical inflection point in this country. And I worry for our democracy in some, in, in, you know, some critical ways. Um, I am very hopeful when I talk to students, uh, and, and young people in, in this, at Bennington and in this country, when I see how much they care and how much, um, they want deeply to change this incredible divisiveness that is in this country and from that um, create a stronger dialogue and a stronger democracy and to stand up to the hatred that is so rampant in our politics. I mean, it is um, it's astonishing. So we are working you know, with students on campus, uh, they, there's such uh, passion and and you know desire to vote and to kind of get out there and um, make a difference. But this is a, obviously this is a critical election. It's a critical time in these students' lives for you know thinking about what does a vote mean, what does it mean to to help to shape the future of this world and of this country because. I think everyone is thinking on campus is thinking about what they can do to to make sure we have a democracy going forward that that will be worthy. But I also think as with COVID, as with the election and the political situation, there are opportunities and you see a kind of a dialogue that's happening around race, around gender, around um income inequality and around the climate uh, that is coming out in the last several years that in a, in a different way and from this generation. And so I'm very hopeful that this generation will lead us in many ways to create a more just society. You have two remarkable United States senators from Vermont, Laura Walker, 
And I'm wondering what potential you have for being in touch with them in terms of helping Bennington. Oh, yeah. So I've met with Senator Leahy and I've met with Senator Sanders' staff, and they are you know, really, really strong supporters of Bennington. And I think, um, you know, Bennington has had such a strong, you know, kind of place in in Vermont's uh, history. And I think particularly given the fact that, uh, you know, other colleges here have, uh, you know, so other small colleges have not made it. Uh, I think the senators are very, very devoted to figuring out how they can help us through COVID, how they can, you know, help us uh, get some funding from other sources in the federal government, how we they can help us take stands uh, to to protect our international students, for example. They've been incredibly helpful, as you know, when there was the, you know, Trump's, um, you know, when he issued a ruling in in August that, you know, students that were, you know, were studying remotely couldn't, you know, uh, get, you know, be be registered or, you know, and had to, if they they had to go, they had to leave if it was just remote. I mean, the the senators have been incredibly supportive and and we have, uh, you know, I think strong, strong contacts with them and and I'm deeply grateful um, for their support. And a wonderful congressman. It's one of the few states that has one congressman and two U.S. senators. One right? That is a difference, Alan. I think, you know, in Brooklyn, I, I don't know how many exact, uh, exactly yeah, how many yeah. congressmen I have, but you can go, like, probably a mile and be in another yeah. uh, <laughs> district in Brooklyn, where I'm from. But he's fabulous. So so let me, let me ask you a college president question, having been a professor for many years myself yeah. and having seen some strange things. Um, uh, one woman, uh, a department decided uh, on one woman when I was there that uh, she wasn't enough of a Marxist. I believe that's what was going on, and they didn't give her tenure. And the president had to do what had to be done and to reverse a department, mm-hmm. and then vice versa. You have that kind of thing. Have you had any premonitions of having to make difficult decisions on retention? Retention of faculty, you mean? Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. No. I mean, I think uh, the faculty at Bennington uh, has an, a really strong process for reviewing faculty. Now, we don't have tenure. Um, we have long-term contracts. And the faculty itself uh, has a very robust and rigorous process of reviewing faculty and every you know, at the ends of the, their contracts and you know, recommending for uh, either, you know, continuation or in some cases, you know, not. Uh, and it is, uh, I've been so struck with how um, fair and how uh, rigorous and empathetic that process is. And, and how one of the things about Bennington, because I think it has in its DNA this um, sense of ex- experimentation, Bennington faculty and the community are always asking, how can we do this better? How can we think about what we need? So, for example, there's some really good and uh, positive conversations happening within the faculty about what does diversity mean? What does uh, being anti-racist mean? What does uh, it mean for um, even, you know, thinking about how we review faculty and how we think about our curriculum? 
And so I have been so impressed uh, with how the faculty itself is reviewing. And I, I do want to say that, that um, you know, throughout the community, and one of my um, priorities is to lead a conversation and to or to convene a conversation, I would say, uh, among the whole community around uh, what is Bennington's history of, um, you know, systemic racism? How do we think about uh, who we want to be and how to build an anti-racist community? And that is a question that, you know, students are asking for sure. And also, I think, beginning to really think about their own, both their own and throughout the whole community. What what part do I have in this? What are the systems that are around me? And, um, you know, we're convening a president's working group, which has faculty, staff, uh, you know, students for sure, alums and board members to, you know, tackle this question. So, um, and, and there's several, uh, you know, faculty members, uh, you know, who are, you know, very, very committed in leading this work. Vanessa Lyon, in particular, is a really strong colleague. And, uh, you know, she's on the president's working group. And, you know, so I, I think the faculty is, and I don't see that tension in a way. I see a faculty that's, you know, I mean, for sure, their challenges, their challenges of, you know, we would love to be able to hire even more people and, you know, uh, grow the faculty at this moment. This is not going to be the case since we're facing, you know, we just have to be careful about, you know, expenditures. But I think everyone kind of understands and, you know, is in it together. That's the thing about Bennington. It's like everyone feels like they're in it together to, to help this community be the best it can be. And I think uh, this concept of inclusion in terms of decision-making is very important to you. Yes, Laura? Absolutely. And, you know, it's different in the academic world than it is in, in public radio. As you know, Alan, sometimes in public radio as the CEO, you can make a decision and, you know, it's a little more top down, probably. I think that's probably true. I convene our group. We have a working group every morning, wow. you know, yeah. 7, 50, 7.50 in the morning. We all get together and they tell me what they think. And it's very interesting. We have a board the board has been very supportive. I went to our board at one point and said, Keeler is calling me and wanting to come back. What should we do? And they all, they all yelled, nothing. <laughs> yeah. So boards can play. But I think, you know, the idea, you're, you're right. I could make decisions from the top, but I think it's a mistake. Yes, uh, I, I do agree with you. Right. Uh, yeah. So what you're doing there with your morning meetings and, you know, I, I think I am very dedicated to an inclusive, uh, you know, uh, decision making. And what I say is different. It's like there are, um, you know, one of the things we're really uh, thinking about is what does shared governance mean? You know, because that that's a sure. it's a word, it's a phrase that is just bandied about within the academic right. world. And then you ask somebody, what does it mean? And they're like, either I have no idea or you get a totally different answer from every single person. And that's not just at Bennington, that's everywhere. And so I think we as a community are thinking, what is it, how, how do we do this? How do we create inclusive decision-making, transparent decision-making, you know, better decision-making? Because as you point out, your board in that case had a different, had, a, had an opinion that helped you make a decision. 
right? It's a better thank, decision. Thank God for the, thank God for them. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So, what do you think of of what's going on now? Uh, when we see, you know, uh, Keeler, who of course was, you know, he had a movie made about him. He was the king of the walk, and then is deposed. You had a couple of people at NYC that that happened to. Have things changed? Yes, and I think we are seeing obviously the conversation that needs to happen. We're we're not going to tolerate kind of the harassment, whether it's a sexual harassment or bullying or this sense that. You know, in particular, frankly, white men have a kind of a privilege that that allows them to um, or anybody in power to uh, impose and to have a and and to be sexist, be racist. Uh, you know, we we have to call that out and we have to stop it. And, you know, I, I do. I, I think it's a really good conversation especially when it's constructive and everyone is looking at themselves and looking at it as a systemic issue. Um, you know, I was a victim myself of harassment in the workplace and of, you know, of sexual harassment in the work- workplace. And I know how, how it uh, affects uh, one's ability to work well and, and self-esteem and all of that. And that is what we have to listen to the pain of that and the, um, you know the the how do how do we make sure that uh we're uh creating avenues for victims to uh report i think that that's one of the things we found at wnyc is that there the people didn't necessarily feel as in a lot of places safe to report some of the behavior that they were experiencing and you know that's not that's not one institution that's you know, throughout our country. And that is the kind of uh, systemic kind of change that we need. How did you handle it personally when it happened to you? You know, so what happened to me was questions around was I and was the institution kind of doing enough to know what was happening, you know, to some people at NYC. And, you know, I thought very deeply and both about what had happened and tried to listen to the people and usually women who had suffered from bullying or, um, and, and, you know, we looked very hard at why didn't people come forward and when people did come forward, what happened? You know, I adopted and created a nine point plan to, you know, make sure that what we were doing, that we were going to look, you know, really strongly at everything from pay equity. And we did a pay equity study and made some changes there to let's really think about what our values are and use those values every day to guide what we're doing and to have a conversation, you know, looking at at race. And we did some really deep training with a guy named uh, Glenn Washington, um, I'm sorry, Glenn Singleton from Courageous Conversations. It was just an amazing kind of two-day training that the whole staff did to look at their own complicity and their own, in the case of white people, whiteness, and in the case of people of color, their own experience. And, you know, so we tried, the board, I think, struggled with, you know, how do we make sure that we're setting the right tone and doing our own training and thinking about who we are. And, you know, so we had a lot of action that came out of it. It's a very good answer. And I'm glad I asked it. And I'm glad you interpreted it that way. But you also said you were sexually harassed. Oh, oh and I, was I wondering, see, right. I was wondering how you handle that. 
at the time, I was a young, you know, intern, actually, you know, and I told a few people. Uh, what I did was, what happened was I went into several times into a studio that was, <laughs> as you know, studios are uh, to, to, to bring small. a host. <laughs> they're small and they're, um, yeah, anyway, to bring a host some copy and it was inappropriate behavior on two occasions. And I never went into that studio again alone. Uh, you know, and and this one time somebody said to me, are you sure you want to do that? Like, go in. I'm like, yeah, sure. Like, you know, that was like the fir- second time, the first time. And I'm like, oh, yeah, this is I'm not the only one. So I then I just basically said, I'm not going to do this anymore. And but I told a few friends, you know, it, it wasn't until I think 10 years later that I actually really understood that I wasn't the only one. Yeah. And that helped, you know, to know I wasn't the only one. So what keeps you up at night these days? <laughs> you know, what keeps me up at night is uh, the the way forward in, you know, how to, how to really identify, articulate, and um, pursue the opportunities that are coming out of this period. You know, um, I'm a real believer in, you know, any kind of turmoil and crisis like the ones we're in, um, lead you to uh, your next phase. So, for example, during 9-11, when we were at WNYC right in the heart of it um, and had begun to, um, you know, uh, hire some reporters who thankfully were all around the city that day and um, really, uh as you know, were the eyes and ears of the nation as they were reporting from, you know, downtown. What I what we took from that was we need to do more of that. We need to increase our, our local news. It is so important. In talking, as you know, during 9-11, it, you're talking in New York in a very different way than one talks in Iowa. And mm-hmm. the NPR programming is just not geared toward, it's geared toward the nation, not toward New York. And we needed something different. So we we really doubled down on, you know, Brian's show and on other kind of ways that we opened the phones and, and then put more resources into that. And so we, I saw, you know, this incredible kind of show of what the mission was about and then pulled out and raised money and did more. And I think that's the same case with Bennington. As you look at, say, Judith Ank's class that she's doing online, where I think there's 80 people from around the country in a, in a class that would usually have 15 or 20 at, at Bennington, and, and they're bringing different perspectives and they're being active in their communities. That's that's a kind of thing that we probably wouldn't have done. We wouldn't have done it. You know, and how do you continue the spirit of that class that is singing on the on the lawn and, you know, hearing in a different way and looking at the art and, you know, and also looking at donors and others who are coming to help with COVID relief and, you know, what do they see in Bennington that we can do more of? I only have two more minutes, but you and I were colleagues at a time when there was always, there's always been a bit of a tension between the member stations and National Public Radio. I don't want to get you into this because I don't think it's fair. Uh, However, I have been fighting that fight for quite a while now, and I'm not happy with the way in which NPR has treated its member stations. Have anything to say about that? Well, yes, we've been in the trenches on that one, Alan, and I think that both you and I believe that the way to 
the way to respond is to to meet the needs of the community and to tell I mean like what you're doing and you know convening people that uh, every day on the roundtable and on your other shows that are uh, you know talking about the things that are of concern to your community and to others and and that's what we did and I think that too many. I think that there, that's where the opportunity is, and that's where the, you know, the essential um, kind of nature of, of stations, and that is, which is in, in really deep programming that comes out of the community, and I think NPR needs to understand that and and pick up on that even more, as a as a community, and and highlight those voices. Well, Laura Walker, this has been a real pleasure. I have to say, you and I were pals for a long time, yeah, and I love the idea. But if you think you're going to get away with just one hour, you're wrong. We're going to have you back, and we'll, we'll pick this up as we go on. But thank you so much for what you've done, for all your fine work at NYC in New York, and for what you're going to do at Bennington. Thanks again, Laura. It is my pleasure. And, Alan, I'm so glad to be a listener to WAMC. You're doing a great job. You've been listening to Dr. Alan Chartok, president and CEO of WAMC Northeast Public Radio, and Professor Emeritus at the University at Albany. For more information on WAMC's In Conversation with Alan series, or to order a physical copy, call 1-800-323-9262, or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or on the Google Play Store.